How many founders do we know, myself included, who burn parts of ourselves mentally, physically, emotionally to be more successful at an action or to be more successful at our company? Like it is taking aspects of yourself and grinding them down and giving it to this other entity so that it can succeed. Welcome back to yet another episode of Startups and the Rest of Us. I'm your host, Rob Walling, and I'm doing a Rob solo adventure this week. Going to talk through some thoughts and mental frameworks about certainty versus uncertainty, which things should I be working on versus delegating, supervising versus leading. Might even touch on a concept called spell burn and, and talk about thought processes behind when things take iterations and how to, how to maybe know if you're on the right track. So the first topic I want to cover today is a question that I'm asked relatively frequently, and it's something that I've just written down in my book that I'm working on. I'm working on a book about building seven-figure SaaS companies, right? Bootstrapping or mostly bootstrapping. And this question of what should I be focused on versus which things should I delegate, which roles, which responsibilities, which tasks. And the framework that I have around this is certainty versus uncertainty, There are so many tasks in a startup that you're relatively certain what the outcome will be. So email support is a certainty you're going to get some emails, and it's a certainty you're going to have a response to those emails, right? There's not so much creative work or or big levels of, is this going to happen? Is this going to work? I need to try a bunch of different things before I figure out what works. Now, in the early days, in the first month, two, three months, yes, there are new questions. You don't know what's coming. But eventually, you get your canned responses in, and you've kind of seen 80% of the tickets that are going to come through, and you figure out ways to put stuff into KB and to make support a repeatable process. And this is similar even with, with software development, with actually writing the code. Unless you're building something incredibly novel, incredibly difficult, AI, machine learning, something maybe with VR, unless you're doing that, the odds are that once you know which features to build that getting that feature built is pretty predictable. You know that you can build the page to have the checkbox with the setting that says whether people should send email or receive email, right? It's a checkbox. You know you can build this. You may be off on the time estimate. Is it going to take a day? Is it going to take three days? That's a little uncertain. But getting that task done is pretty predictable. And thus, I would call it a certainty. Versus which features should we build in order to get closer to product market fit or in order to satisfy more customers? Which feature should we build next? How should we prioritize these? It's uncertain. It's kind of foggy. You do not have absolute data. You don't know exactly which is going to work. And frankly, you're probably going to have to make some mistakes along the way and you're going to build some features that maybe you shouldn't have built. We did that. I've done that before. You build them and then you think, you know, a year or two later, no one ever used that. Why did I build it? But you need to get enough successes when you're doing that that you keep pushing the product forward. Another big area of uncertainty is in marketing. When you don't have any marketing approaches that are working and sending you know, constant, consistent leads to your site, it's going to be some uncertainty of like, well, we don't have any data on which approaches we should try. So the first thing I would do is go to my rules of thumb or like, what are the, the main, the five main B2B SaaS marketing approaches? I will reveal those in my upcoming book. You know, and I would pick one of those and I would dive deep on it and you try it and you go months in and you go all in and you spend the time and it may work 
and I may not. And the uncertainty there is kind of unnerving. But being a founder is making hard decisions with incomplete information. But as you think about these two paradigms of certain versus uncertain, realistically, as the founder, you should be diving into the things that are hard and that are uncertain because you're the best equipped to figure those out. Now, there are some exceptions, I'll say, is well, could I just hire a marketing genius unicorn who can come in and take the uncertainty and try a bunch of marketing approaches and figure them out? Is that possible? Yes. Is it likely? No. You are going to have to find, you know, the one in 10,000 marketer, someone like an Asia Aranjo, a Corey Haynes. There are a few other folks I've worked with who are, who are that good that they can take the strategy, try a bunch of things, figure it out, and then, you know, make them more certain. Because once you're six months into running ads and they're working, once you're six months into SEO and content and that's generating leads and it's growing your business, that becomes more of a certainty. And at that point, that's when you can start to think about handing it off. You hire someone, you bring someone in who's really good at that particular thing. You bring in an amazing content marketer, an amazing SEO writer. And this is now a proven aspect of your business. Just like your product is, like deciding what to build next is really, really hard before product market fit because you're flailing all over the place. You don't really know on this huge C, I don't have 80% of the features that I need. Flash forward two, three years, you have product market fit, you're doing two, three million dollars a year. It becomes a lot easier, like from experience, it becomes a lot easier to look ahead almost a year and say, eh, this is probably what we need <laughs> over the next year. Now, there's always going to be stuff that you know makes its way in that you didn't hear about. But by that time, you've heard so many suggestions and you've kind of heard the gamut of what someone could possibly want in your product because there's maturity and it's become a more certain piece of your business. And in fact, that's at the point where we hired our first product manager. The first time that the two co-founders of Drip did not make every single product decision about what should be built and you know a lot about how it should be built, although we had designers helping us with that. The first time was when we were doing a few million dollars. And we could have feasibly done it a little earlier, but I'm going to be honest, there was a lot more uncertainty before that point. And so the lesson I want you to take away as a founder or an aspiring founder is that the areas of uncertainty are going to be the ones that you don't want to lean into. Your comfort zone is in areas of certainty because you know that you can do them. You know you can write the code and ship the code to make the app. The uncertain piece is, do you know what to build to make the app viable, to make it into not just a hobby, but a business? And the answer is probably not. So you need to lean into the uncertain, the riskier aspects of your business at the start, because those are the, the ones that make you uncomfortable. And those are the ones that are going to help you, you know, actually grow the business. And you can use this as a guiding principle of the moment that I have enough money to hire someone, whether it's a part-time contractor, whether it's a full-time person, I would always be looking to essentially offload the areas of certainty. Customer support is an early one. Software development, it is more of a certainty. Yes, I know there's elegant, I know there's craft to it. I'm a developer myself, or really used to be a developer, but I know the craft that goes around development and that as a founder, you care more than anyone else. And that's true. But honestly, if you want to grow this business and you want to build something that people want and get there fast and be an ambitious startup founder, you are likely leaving growth on the table by hanging out in areas of certainty for too long. My second topic is about, as a founder, giving everything to your business without taking the proper breaks or the rest to recharge. And it is a recipe for burnout. And this is also a recipe for not operating at a high level, right? Not operating at your peak productivity. And for this, I want to use an analogy from a tabletop role-playing game. It's called 
Dungeon Crawl Classics. And this is, if you've heard of Dungeons and Dragons, this is a game similar to that. You roll dice, it randomly decides, you know, if you hit or you don't a creature and how much hit points you do. And there's solving of puzzles, there's exploration. You know, it's an interactive game. It's it's a fun game you can play, play in person or, or some folks play it online. But the thing that I like about Dungeon Crawl Classics, which I've never actually played, I have the rule book and I listen to some podcasts of people who talk about it. But one of my favorite elements of DCC, as it's called Dungeon Crawl Classics, is this concept of spell burn. It's this phrase they invented to define this mechanic of the game. And what spell burn is is if you are a magic user or a mage, follow me on this. Even if you don't, even if you don't like role-playing games, just follow me. I'll get, I'll get it back to startups. Spell burn is if you are a spellcaster, you can burn some of your stats to add to your die roll when you go to hit or to cast a spell. To roll back your stats, you have things like strength and agility and yeah, I forget what they're called in DCC. It's not this, the D&D ones are strength, dexterity, Wisdom, intelligence, constitution, charisma. And each of those defines something. Strength is how strong you are. Dexterity is how agile you move around. And again, DCC has different names for them. I think they use agility instead of dexterity. But with Dungeon Crawl Classics, you can burn points of strength, points of agility, and I think maybe it's charisma is the third one. And when I say burn, basically, you know, these attributes range from um, three to 18. And you can say, I'm going to take three of my strength points. If I'm at, let's say I have a 15 strength, I'm going to take three of my strength points and I'm going to add them to this die roll. And then your strength temporarily drops down to 12. That weakens you. It makes your attacks work less. It, it literally is taxing your physical form, but you are, it's like you're pushing it into the spell you're casting. And then, you know, you roll your die and if you, if you hit it without the added three, then you made a bad choice. But if that three is the difference between hitting and missing, you know, you only use this when you really, really need it. And it's going to be a total party killer. You're going to get, you're going to get crushed. And the concept here is that you are literally sacrificing part of your physical form in order to be successful at this action. So I th- I'm hoping you can see the obvious path to what I'm about to say about startup founders. How many founders do we know, myself included, who burn parts of ourselves mentally, physically, emotionally to be more successful at an action? or to be more successful at our company? How many of us sacrifice sleep, sacrifice exercise, sacrifice personal relationships, sacrifice alone time for emotional recharging? Startup burn, maybe, maybe that's the term for it. I think of it as, it is, it is spell burn. Like it is taking aspects of yourself and grinding them down and giving it to this other entity so that it can succeed. And in the short term, it will work. In DCC, if you spell burn your points down too low, you eventually can die. You can sacrifice your life to die to cast this last spell. The way you recharge is you take rests. I think healing potions might also work. I actually don't know. You can tell I, you can tell I like the concept but haven't actually played the game. But long rests is what starts to recharge you. I think you, you re- recharge one point per day or whatever to give you an idea of how long. If you sacrifice three or five or eight points, it can take a long time to regain these back. And it's the same with startups. It's the same with your company. When you give all of your emotional energy and all of your time, your 40, your 50, maybe your 60 hour weeks, if you're doing that, all of your kind of your, your bucket, you empty your bucket for your company or your product, and you don't have any left for the rest of your life, you have to eventually take a rest. You have to step away in a way that recharges those batteries. And personally, you know, we ran a tiny seed retreat about 10 days ago before I'm recording this, and then we had a microconf right after it. 
And I always know for at least the first two or three days after a microconf, I'm going to get almost no work done. I'm going to barely be able to talk to any other human, my wife and children included. I basically strapped on a VR headset for two, three hours. I played a bunch of games. I read about tabletop RPGs. I listened to podcasts that had nothing to do with business. I watched some TV shows. I don't really watch TV, but I needed to do something that wasn't thinking about or interacting with or diving into the business because I had spellburned myself into a place of exhaustion, which is what happens. And that's okay. And it's okay. And I know that going into it. And in fact, I talked to several people on my team, producers, Xander and others. And basically it's the same thing. We all felt that way because you put so much into it. And so the lesson I want to, I want to say is, look, it's okay to do that, but know that you have to take this in seasons and you need to recharge quite frequently, probably more frequently than you think you do. And while you'll have seasons of maybe working long hours of being really emotionally intense about it, if you do that for months or years, it will absolutely grind you down. It will lead you to burnout. It will lead you to unhappiness. And it's just not a long-term sustainable approach. Anytime I can talk about tabletop RPGs and relate them to startups, I consider that a win. Our sponsor this week is Microsoft for Startups Founders Hub. Microsoft for Startups is on a mission to help all founders innovate and grow no matter their background, location, or progress. To this end, they've recently launched Microsoft for Startups Founders Hub, a platform that provides founders with free resources to help solve startup challenges. Members of the platform get a ton of benefits that can help founders build their startup faster from day one. Up to $150,000 in Azure credits, free development tools like GitHub, free Microsoft collaboration and productivity software like Teams and Outlook, offers from startup-friendly partners, and more. A strong and diverse network is critical to a startup's success, and so Microsoft for Startups Founders Hub is making this historically inaccessible resource open to all by providing members access to a mentor network as well as technical advisors. Members can book time with mentors to get expert feedback and advice on their product roadmap, business plan, fundraising approach, marketing plan, and more. The program is open to everyone, no matter your startup stage. And unlike other programs, there are no funding requirements. And the sign-up process takes less than five minutes. Learn more about Microsoft for Startups Founders Hub at aka.ms slash startups for the rest of us. That's aka.ms slash startups for the rest of us. My next topic is around management. And, and more specifically, it's a question I received from a founder that was saying, when should I hire my first manager? As a startup founder, should your third hire be someone who manages other people? Right? That, that was kind of the question we were getting at. And to, to answer that question, I had to frame it with this framework that I have around management. I, I think there's two components to management. There's supervising and there's leading. And they're two very different things. The supervision is more of a mechanical approach. It's taking care of vacation requests it's handling, you know, being a liaison between them and HR. It's doing monthly or weekly one-on-ones. It's annual reviews. It's worrying about pay in terms of their salary and that they're well compensated, that they're happy. Like it's it's the mechanics of interacting with that that human, <laughs> that that person on your team versus leadership or leading, which is the way I define it is Guiding them, mentoring them, and and overseeing their actual on-the-job actions, right? So I want to give an example to, to illuminate this. If you're a developer, it's often that you'll have a tech lead who is not your manager. That tech lead is probably 
doing code reviews for you, mentoring you, you know, in terms of software development, making sure the code base is great, guiding architecture. There's all types of things happening, but the tech lead is often not your supervisor or your manager. That often is a director of engineering or a manager of engineering. Or in the case of Drip, where I was the co-founder, I supervised the entire team. Everyone reported to me. And that was because we never got more than 10 people. And frankly, it was frankly more than you shouldn't have more than six direct reports. Let me just put it that way. But that's that's what made the most sense. I had the most management experience. And so I was handling all the day-to-day operational, mechanical supervision of everyone. The leadership, the technical leadership specifically, was much, much, much more on Derek's plate. Now, he knew Ruby, I didn't. He and I would architect things, we would talk about things, we would guide it technically, but he was the tech lead. That that was his role, right? And all the engineers looked to him for technical guidance, and then they looked to me for, can I take time off, right? What, what's going on with, with my health insurance? Similarly with customer success, once we had two customer success people, Anna became the head of customer success. She was the technical lead of our other customer success person, but everybody still reported to me. So supervising versus leading. And that's, that's how I want you to think about it is you could have, again, you could have a 10-person company and you could be the supervisor or the manager of 10 people. They're all reporting to you. But I think at that point, you can't possibly be a subject matter expert in all the areas and you have to have someone leading at least a couple of those areas. And usually it's product slash engineering, customer success. I can imagine there being a sales leader. You know, if, if we were a heavy sales org, that would have been the case. I wouldn't have, I didn't have the skill set to do that. So the reason I make this differentiation is I think leadership and you know the technical leadership or the customer success leadership, that can happen really early. And you can have someone who is, is a good individual contributor be a good leader. But being a supervisor and providing that, I'd say it's more advanced or more, more in-depth like feedback and giving critical feedback about performance, that often takes a lot of work. You know, it takes some practice or having worked with a manager that you respect who's doing a really good job. And so I think really early on in your company, delegating leadership of development or leadership of sales or leadership of customer success, I think is an absolute win. And I think by the time you're at three or four people, maybe five, like you should start thinking about that. If you have anyone who is a little more senior, delegating that without delegating the supervision if they don't have the experience. And then when you get to the point where you directly have about six direct reports, not including any founders, you should really start thinking about, okay, am I able to promote any of the leads that I have into a full-blown manager where they're both supervising and leading? So I hope that's helpful for you in thinking through that concept of, you know, when should I hire managers for my company? For the fourth and final topic of today, I want to talk about iterating. And I want to talk about how sometimes things take a lot of iterations and sometimes they don't. And sometimes you nail them from the start. For this one, I'm going to have another analogy and not tabletop role-playing games, but is uh, another one of my favorite topics, the Beatles. So my youngest son and I listen to all the alternate takes of Strawberry Fields Forever. I'm sure you've heard this song. And the cool thing about the Beatles is they have so many great songs, but then they also have all this outtake footage where there are literally at least 26 takes of Strawberry Fields Forever that were recorded. And then there are a bunch more that they were just doing in practice, right, and not recording. This is in addition to the demo version that John Lennon recorded at his house. And the crazy thing about it is they've released takes one, four, seven, and 26. They're on Spotify. You can find them on YouTube. And then there's the final version, and then there's a demo version. So there's literally like six or seven versions of the song. And 
my son took to this one version that is it's very different than the others and of course these aren't just takes you know when you think of a musician doing 20 takes of something you think oh well they they hit the wrong notes they didn't get that they were off beat they but that's not the this is the beatles like they're they're genius musicians and they every take almost every take is a full take through that could have been pressed pressed to uh, to vinyl so that's not what they're doing right it's not that they're taking it because they screwed up they're adapting the song. They're changing the song over time. And so when you listen to Take One, it's this very stripped down, almost acoustic thing with kind of a keyboard behind it. Let me take you down, cause I'm going to strawberry fields. Nothing is real. And nothing to get hung about. Strawberry fields forever. And then by take six or seven, they're adding horns in. Let me take you down, cause I'm going to strawberry There's a the take 26 has cellos. It has backwards drum beats playing in it. It's way faster. It is just a, almost a completely different song. The melody and the words are still there, but the feel of the song has evolved from John with his guitar into this, frankly, an incredible work of art. say they didn't do that with every song but they were willing to put in the time and they were willing to follow their gut to to get to to get to a vision that they had in their head you know that John Lennon or Paul McCartney or George Harrison that they had a vision in their head of what that song maybe should sound like but they didn't know exactly and they just had to work it and work it and work it and get there and then there were songs like yesterday that Paul McCartney woke up and the melody was in his head and he thought that he had heard it somewhere else, but he remembered it anyway. He's playing the song with different lyrics. Or originally it was called Scrambled Eggs and really bad words. Not like, you know, yesterday, all my troubles seem so far away, like is, is a good song, but it was like Scrambled Eggs, Oh, How I Love Your Legs. I think that was the original lyric. It's terrible. But he's playing this for people saying, have you ever heard this? Have you ever heard this? Because he's like, I think I'm, I'm ripping this off by accident because it was just in my head. And that was it. He wrote the lyrics. And my understanding is there are two takes, literally two takes, that's it of that song because the song was done and he knew it had hit the vision and he knew it was amazing. And it is one of, I think my favorite Beatles songs. I think it's one of my favorite songs of all time, to be honest. And it is, I think still the most covered song ever that has the most cover versions of any song ever written by anyone is yesterday. So I think there's a little testament to it's, it's probably a pretty good one. And so here we have on one hand, we have Strawberry Fields Forever with all this iteration over days and days and days, getting a full, not a full orchestra, but most of an orchestra involved and having all these versions. And then we have Yesterday that pops into a guy's head and that he does two takes of and it's done. And 
there are other examples of this, not just the Beatles. I went, I've been to several Picasso museums because, and it's funny, Picasso's art is fine. Like it's not like I'm enthralled with Picasso, but Picasso's creative process is incredible. And there's a reason that I have a Picasso guitar tattooed on one of my arms because I'm enthralled with the fact that he would paint the same painting in different ways 20, 30, 40 times because he was iterating, trying to figure out how am I going to get this to work? How does this fit together to where my taste, this finally lives up to my taste of what I want this to be? And that's how he invented cubism. You can go Google that, but it's an entire like you know, branch of art. It's a style of art that just didn't exist. And he learned the basics and he learned the fundamentals and he painted paintings like everyone else. And then he just started iterating and iterating. And you'll see there's one room, I believe it's in Barcelona, the Picasso Museum in Barcelona, where there are like 25 to 30 versions of the same painting with different colors from different perspectives with different views. And it changes each time. And I'm so struck. I've sat in that room for 10, 15 minutes and just stared at these these works of art that any one of them is a work of art and could be hung in a museum, but they didn't live up to his taste. It wasn't what he wanted. He knew he was not getting the results that he wanted. And so he kept iterating. And similarly with genius, Einstein spent how many years iterating and developing relativity? It did not hit him instantly. And so I think that's a long way of saying that in startups, it's the same thing. Sometimes you will start a marketing approach, content, say SEO, and it kind of works from the start, but it doesn't really And I think founders who aren't long-term successful, they throw their hands up and say, ah, this doesn't work. AdWords, Facebook ads, they they just don't work. And it's like, but they do and they can. Now, it may not work in your space, that's true. But did you think that maybe you didn't iterate enough? Did you think the execution is off? That you need to play around with it more? That maybe you need to get better at Facebook ads, Google ads, content, SEO? Maybe you need to give it more time? And there's a balance here, right? You don't want to do something for a year and spend all that time and have it not work. But you also, I think given a marketing approach a month or giving a product three months to find product market fit is too short. There's some place in between where you need to see the progress along the way that as you iterate, there should be some progress made and you should be getting some traction with it slowly. And you start to see that, that light at the end of the tunnel, you start to see take 26 on the horizon or you know, painting number 30 where you think, I'm getting there. I've said before, so much of being a founder is managing your own psychology. And part of that is knowing yourself. And if you're the one who tends to just skip from one thing to the next and you don't iterate and you don't improve it and you don't put in the time to figure out these hard things, then you probably need to stick with things longer than feels rational, longer than you want to. And you need to get reinforcement from a mastermind group, from a co-founder from someone else who has some insight in your business because oftentimes we have blind spots and we need a different perspective to help us, help guide us or to help push us when we're, we want to skip to the next thing. Conversely, if you're the person who sits and grinds on something for nine months, I tried Facebook ads for nine months and they didn't work, probably too long then. You probably should have got some outside counsel before then. Maybe you should have considered hiring a consultant. Maybe you should have just bailed on it and moved on to content and SEO. You know, there's, there's this balance of knowing yourself and knowing what your tendencies are. But realizing that even geniuses, even the best there have ever been, you know, people like Einstein, Picasso, and the Beatles, these names are synonymous. They are used as examples of geniuses. Even these inventors, artists, and musicians had to iterate over and over and over on their works to get them to be successful, to get them to live up to their taste. I think to a lot of us, this is where we put our creative juices, right? This is how 
we get that feeling of building something. This is our dopamine rush. For some people, it's writing a song or painting. And for others, it's shipping a feature or it's building a, you know, a multi-million dollar company that changes your life. So I hope that thought of sometimes needing many iterations, sometimes, though in rare cases, not. I hope that that kind of thought process or mental framework is helpful to you this week on your entrepreneurial journey. Speaking of showing up every week for 12 years, this is episode 600. And I debated whether to even bring it up because I'm just not sure how important that number is. It, should it be any different than 599 or 601? It happens to have a couple zeros at the end, but you show up every week to build something like this. And when these 100 episode milestones hit, I always think I should do something different and special and I should bring on these guests and we should reflect on things we've done and how we've done it. And, you know, we, we have done that, right? We had our wives, Mike and I had our wives on for an episode. That was probably episode 200. I've done reflection episodes, look back episodes. We've had people send in audio clips. We've had all the, you know, all the stuff. And I think that's great. And maybe at 700, I'll do that again. But I think it's a good reminder to think about sometimes just showing up every week and putting in your time, whether it's this podcast or whether it's showing up every day to ship that next feature Celebrate your milestones, and I'll be celebrating privately. I'll probably hang out with my wife and kids tonight and you know, raise a glass to episode 600. But as you build your product, as you build your business, as you build your company, remember to think in terms of years, not months. Sometimes just showing up every day or every week and putting in the work is what you need to do to get to where you want to go. So thank you so much for joining me this week. And whether it's for the last six or last 600 episodes, it's been my absolute pleasure to get on the microphone and be able to think about these things and talk about them. And hopefully these are helpful to you this week or this month or this year as you build and grow your company. Signing off from episode 600. I'll be back in your ears again next Tuesday morning.